Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Thank you so much for allowing me to come and share with you. I've been here several times, and to be honest, it's always an honor to be here. And to be frank, it's always a lot of fun. Uh, throughout the years, I've got to know a number of your members. Uh, last year, a couple of handfuls of your members came to Colorado, and I got to lead them on hikes to the highest peaks in Colorado. Uh, a few years ago, or several years ago now, I guess, I got to go with a group of yours uh, to Greece and Turkey and had an amazing, life-changing time. On that trip, we were driving from Greece to Turkey, and I was looking out of the bus, and I saw a sign that said Lake Narcissus. Now, I'm a bit of a Greek geek and Greek mythology geek, and so I reached up to our tour guide and said, is that the lake of Narcissus? And she said, you know the story of Narcissus? I was like, yeah, you know, he was really beautiful, and he once found, as he was hunting, saw his reflection in this lake, and he was so attracted to it that he never left, and he just stared at his reflection and stared at his reflection and stared at his reflection until finally he just died there, and a flower called Narcissus um, grew up there. And she said, yeah, yeah, but do you know the rest of the story? I was like, oh, right, 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 yeah, so there was this... Uh, this person named Echo that was also in love with Narcissus. And uh, when he died, she just continued to walk around saying his name over and over and over until she faded into the Echo. The tour guide said, yes, but do you know the rest of the story? Now, before that time, I was proud of myself, but now I was at a loss and said, no, what's the rest of the story? And she says, well, after Narcissus died, the lake began to cry. And that's not a freshwater lake, but instead it's a saltwater lake. Because as the lake began to weep and weep and weep, the salt of its tears turned it into a salt lake. And the goddess saw, one of the goddesses saw that lake Narcissus was weeping. And she came down and said, are you sad because of Narcissus? And the lake said, yes. And the the goddess said, was it because of his beauty? And the lake asked, was Narcissus beautiful? The goddess was taken aback and says, well, if anyone should know, it should be you because you were staring at him. And the lake said, no, no, no. I wasn't staring at Narcissus because he's beautiful. I was staring at Narcissus because I could see my reflection in his eyes. For over 25 years, I've been in ministry. And similarly, I think so often when we come to a Bible text, We sometimes miss the beauty because we're not looking at the beauty of God's word, but what we see more so than the truth of God's word is our own reflections, our own agendas, our own understanding, our own cultural baggage, our own presuppositions that we bring to the text. And this is specifically the case for passages that are hard to understand, and even more particularly the case for our passage today, 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. For some of you who have grown up in church already, there's like a red flag that's coming up. Because this is the passage that, really the key passage that has been used to oppress women. It's been used to exclude women from ministry. 
Last year when Mike came up to climb the 14ers, uh, I think it almost did him in. And him asking me to preach this passage, uh, I think it may be his payback. Uh, There are some passages that are made for the pulpit, and there are some that are made for the classroom. And this is one of those cases where um, it's really probably better a lecture than it is a sermon. And so what I'm going to do is, if you don't mind, turn this into a lecture sermon or a lermon. Um, and so what we want to do when we come to these very difficult passages that we're about to read in 1 Timothy 2 is that we want to make sure that we obey the first rule of Bible, I mean the first rule of Bible interpretation. And that is context, context, context. A verse can never mean what it never meant. And so in my years of teaching at Washtenaw Baptist University and at Denver Seminary now, uh, one of the things that I have my students learn, this mantra, is that what I just said, context, 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 a verse can never mean what it never meant. Context, 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 a verse can never mean what it never meant. Say it with me. Context, 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 a verse can never mean what it never meant. One more time. Context, context, context. A voice can never mean what it never meant. A verse cannot mean what it never, can never meant. And so what we want to do is we want to make sure that when we look at this passage that we see it for what it is rather than seeing it from our own reflection. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to look at it in context with four different contexts. One, the historical context. Secondly, the uh, cultural context. Thirdly, the literary context. And finally, the, exit, uh, the uh, grammatical context. So those would be the four contexts. If you don't, those are big words. If you don't understand, don't worry. We're going to unpack them as we go. But one thing that we understand is that uh, bad theology, it hurts people. And bad theology comes from bad exegesis, bad Bible interpretation. And Bible, bad Bible interpretation often comes from taking a passage out of context and using it for a proof text. And so what we want to do is, uh, in a sense, to muddy the water, to say that this verse that we've often thought it meant something, may not mean what you think it means. It may be inconceivable uh, in a sense. So let's look at the God's Word. First Timothy chapter 2, let's begin in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was firm, firmed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are some passages that say the word of the Lord. I'm like, yeah, thanks be to God. And this is one of those, like, thanks be to God, question mark. It's a really tough passage. And again, as I mentioned before, it's often been this is tragically abused to exploit, to oppress, and to exclude women from ministry. But what we want to do is we want to put it in its context, that we see it for what it is saying rather than our own reflection. And so first of all, we want to make sure that we look at this passage in light of Paul's history. Is Paul a chauvinist? Is Paul misogynistic? Well, if we go back to the book of Acts, if we go to Paul's letters, we see that this verse seems to stand diametrically opposed to Paul's practice. Uh, we see in Acts how Paul exalts women. We see how he uses Lydia and her home as a base of operations. We see how Paul um, has Priscilla and Aquila and considers them ministries and uh, partners in their ministry. In fact, Paul does something unusual when it comes to the husband and wife, Priscilla and Aquila. 
Um, in the Roman world, very similar to our world today, you would say Mr. and Mrs. McDaniel, um, but Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he puts Priscilla first and says Mrs. and Mr. Um, Priscilla, in a sense. We see this not only in Paul's ministry, where he has women that he is using in ministry that are partners with him in ministry, but we also see this in his letters. We see that 1 Corinthians is written because there's a church leader named Chloe who asks these theological questions, and Paul writes 1 Corinthians to answer Chloe's letters. We see Romans, my favorite book of the Bible. It was first delivered by Phoebe. We see in uh, chapter 16, verse 1. And actually, if you read chapter 16, you see all of these women that Paul considers leaders in the church. Junia, who is esteemed as an apostle. We see Julia, Gulia. We see um, uh, in Philippians, we could go from Romans to Philippians, you Adea and Synthetiki, that Paul says, "These these were partners with me in ministry. And so, When we read this passage about Paul saying women will be saved through childbearing and women should remain silent and learn in quietness, uh, it seems to go against what Paul had done historically. But not just that um, in his own ministry, but we see in 1 Corinthians that Paul says women should not remain silent in the church. Instead, they should prophesy. Granted, culturally speaking, when they prophesy, they should have head coverings, but prophecy was not just like prophecy in the sense of foretelling like the book of Revelation, but prophecy was often considered preaching and maybe declared that way. We see that women were praying in Paul's churches. Not only that, but we see that one of Paul's most fundamental verses uh, that some scholars believe was even a baptismal verse is Galatians 3.28, that in Christ there is neither male nor female. Now, I submit to you, and I would fight this to to the core, that this is the most egalitarian thing that had been said previously to Paul and maybe since, that in Christ, the gender, the the sexual distinctions now is separated. It's been broken down, that in Christ, there's neither male nor female. And so when we take this passage in 1 Timothy 2 that makes us say, thanks be to God, and we put it among these others, I'm a Gen Gen Xer, Um, I grew up uh, cutting my teeth on Sesame Street, and I loved Cookie Monster. Do you guys remember Cookie Monster? And do you remember his famous song? One of these things are not like the other. One of these don't belong. Do you remember? Yeah, so he has all these cookies, and there's one cookie that looks different than the other cookies, and he he sings a song. One of these things are not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Well, what happens is when we take 1 Timothy 2, and we put it side by side by side with these other cookies, as it were, we realize that it is the maverick. It is the outlier. It doesn't look like these other cookies. And so when we come to talk about our theology and the, the role of women and Paul's understanding and the Bible's understanding of women, we need to, first of all, note that this cookie looks different from all the other cookies that we have. Now, what we're going to see is that there are going to be people who love God's word that are going to fall on different sides of how to interpret First Timothy 2. And what usually is the case, and this is generally speaking, is that some take the odd cookie um, and they interpret the other cookies in light of the cookie that is the outlier. Now, I'm going to say that we do it the other way around because this odd cookie has so many controversial, difficult things that are happening and because of these other contexts. And I would say that we want to make sure that we see this odd cookie um, and reverse it and look at the clear cookies about what Paul does about exalting women and using women in ministry and seeing the odd cookie as something differently. 
Let's talk about that odd cookie a little bit more. Let's, so that's the historical context. We want to make sure that we see that um, Paul, uh, in contrast to what may, maybe 1 Timothy 2 sounds like, um, Paul is not a chauvinist. He's not misogynistic. The second thing we want to look at is the cultural context. Now, we need to understand that Paul is writing from a different culture at a different time and a different language. And so even though God's word is written for us, it was not written to us. It was not written in English. It wasn't written in the NIV or the King James Version. It was written in Greek. Um, It wasn't written to Americans. It wasn't written to uh, Northwest Arkansans. It wasn't written to uh, Razorback fans. Um, But instead, um, it was written to a group in Ephesus and uh, in a cultural time in the first century. And so we come to the cultural aspect, and one thing that we need to understand about women in that culture is that women were not allowed to learn, especially in the Jewish culture. Um, Women, uh, there was one rabbi around Paul's time that said that it would be better for the Bible to be burnt than than for women to learn it. It'd be better for us to burn the Torah than to give it to a woman. In fact, uh, the Jewish uh, culture around Paul's time was very misogynistic. It was very uh, demeaning of women. In fact, in the Jewish burial uh, times, they would make the women walk before the casket because Eve was responsible for the death of men. The Jewish rabbis during Paul's time would say that the reason women menstruate every month is to remind them that they're responsible for blood in the world. And so we see again and again and again that in this culture, women, their place was not learning. Their place was not understanding. Fortunately, uh, Jesus begins to push back at this, right? Because he had women that were learning. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus as a disciple. And Paul continues that idea that the gospel is not just for men. The Bible, the truth, is not just for men. And so even though when Paul comes and says women should learn in silence, we're like, wait a second, in submissive, wait a second. But the fact that Paul is saying women should learn already is countercultural of that time. Another aspect of uh, learning in that culture um, is that women should learn in silence and quietness and submissiveness, but guess what? So also should men. Uh, if you go through the, and, and, and I get in, I really geek out into like the first century Greco-Roman literature and the, and the uh, Jewish literature. One thing that you see is that all over the place, it never says that women should learn, but it does say that men should learn. And guess how men should learn? In silence and submission. We have letter after letter, document after document saying that boys and men should learn with a submissive and quiet heart. And so it may not be that Paul is overbearing, oppressing women and saying, women, shut your mouth, don't say anything. Um, it's because women and men, that's the way that you learned in the culture. Now, part of that culture as well may be that uh, since women weren't trained in the classroom, they were more homeschooled um, if they were taught, uh, that uh, when they began to get into group settings, they were asking questions. They didn't really know how to work in a classroom type setting. Now, my wife and I, we've homeschooled for a long, long time. Our oldest child is 23. We were early adopters of homeschooling. And so uh, we're a fan of homeschooling, despite what I'm about to say. Uh, So in my years of working at the university, I can pick out a homeschool kid more than anything else um, because they come and you can tell they're not, for, for many of them, they're not used to the classroom. And they, they ask questions that other kids know that you're not supposed to ask or, you know, they just, they just don't fully understand the classroom because they haven't been trained in that. Um, so when I was at Washita one day, I was teaching and I was using illustration. I was really bringing it home, whatever my point I was trying to make. And I made a reference to Frosties. Um, it's my favorite cereal. And this one homeschool kid interrupts my lecture and says, well, my favorite 
cereal is fruit and fiber. First of all, all of the other kids are like, why is this kid, why is this other student speaking uh, when this is not the time to speak? And secondly, fruit and fiber, that kid's not right. I'm not saying he's not regular. I'm just saying he's not right. So what happens when women begin to come in the church, and we see this in 1 Corinthians, is that uh, some of them don't understand the proper way to learn. They don't understand the classroom rules. And so Paul has to even say in 1 Corinthians that, hey, women don't need to be asking certain questions during the teaching time. Instead, they need to go back home and then ask their husbands during this time. And so these are cultural aspects that come in, especially when we get to Ephesians. And speaking of Ephesians, uh, something that we see in Ephesus that is a huge cultural point is the worship of Artemis. So if you go back to Acts, when Paul comes to Ephesus, if you remember, the gospel begins to disseminate and make such a change that um, the people are upset. They're not upset that Paul is preaching Jesus Christ crucified. They're upset that all of these worshipers of Artemis are now worshiping Jesus Christ and no longer are buying Artemis idols. And so there's this huge riot where they're wanting to kill the Christians. And in this riot, they have this cheer for hours and hours and hours Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over again. Whereas we might say, let's go Yankees. They were like, let's go Artemis. Or maybe uh, if we're going to go soccer, you know, she's here, she's there, she's every, everywhere. Artemis, Artemis, or, or, well, we're in Arkansas, right? So, woo, Artemis, Ephesians, God, baby God. When I say baby God, Artemis was not just the major worship religion of this time, but she was the, the uh, goddess for fertility. She was the goddess who was called the savior of women. She was the goddess who her main, one of her main uh, attractions is that she saved women through childbearing. Artemis was the one who saved women through childbearing. And so this is in Ephesus. This is where there's this huge passion. Uh, rather than Razorback stickers, they're going to have Artemis stickers all over the place. And Artemis was the one who saved women through childbearing. This helps us understand a little bit when we come to 1 Timothy, where it says the, the woman is saved through the childbearing, through these things. Um, and and he, Paul begins to live virtues. We'll come to that more in a moment. But what seems to be the case here is that we have a blending of Artemis religion, a conflation of Artemis religion with Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Again, we'll come back to that. But the point that I want us to see here is that um, Paul is writing to a different culture than ours. And we can't just easily jump from our culture to their culture. There's some heavy lifting that has to go on. There has some context, context, context that we have to do. Now, it's interesting that even in America, moving from Arkansas to Colorado, it's a different cultural context. For example, one thing that we see in Colorado that's not in Arkansas is that weed is legal, right? And so weed is everywhere. In fact, when uh, the lockdown happened, my wife and I were walking at a dog park, and when people began to hear about the lockdown, they raced to their cars, not to go to the grocery store, but to go to the dispensary, because they were afraid the dispensary was going to be shut down. And we go to a church that um, at the end of the church service, they invite the people who are experiencing homelessness to come in and eat with us. And we have a dinner with them where we'll sit with them. And because of that, when you walk out of the church, often associated with, uh, in Colorado, people experiencing homelessness is the smell of weed. 
And so we had moved from First Baptist, Arkadelphia, Arkansas, to this church. And uh, while we were walking downtown, my youngest son, uh, who's on the autism spectrum, uh, smelt something. Someone had lit up publicly downtown. And my son smelt it and said, it smells like church out here. <laughs> now, First Baptist Arkadelphia had a lot of smells, but it wasn't uh, that. It's a different culture. In fact, my mother-in-law lives in uh, Junction City, Arkansas, and she was going to come and visit us in Colorado. And she found an Airbnb, and she was so excited because there was an Airbnb that was pet-friendly. My wife was confused because most Airbnbs aren't very pet-friendly and wouldn't look highly on her bringing her two dogs uh, to, uh, to their Airbnb. And so my wife looked at it and said, Mom, that doesn't say pet-friendly. The ad says pot-friendly. And my mother-in-law said, yeah, I just figured it was a typo. It wasn't a typo. The culture is different. And if that's a case from Arkansas to Colorado, imagine how much it is from the United States 2022 all the way back to the first century in Ephesus. And so sometimes we look at things and say, that must be a typo or that smells differently. We need to understand that we're dealing with different cultures. And so um, not only do we look at the historical, but we also look at the uh, cultural. And thirdly, we look at the literary context. And so with the literary context, um, so often we kind of just come to the Bible and we treat every letter, every book kind of the same, uh, but we need to make sure that we look at the purpose of the letter, who Paul is writing to. And 1 Timothy is our first letter that we have where Paul is actually not writing to a church. He's not writing at large, but instead it's named 1 Timothy, not Ephesus, not Romans, not 1 Corinthians, because he's writing to a pastor, to Timothy. And this is a pastoral letter meant for Timothy more so than church instruction. And so it's almost a one-on-one thing. And so what we see in Paul's history is that after he got out of Rome, he went to Spain to share the gospel there. Uh, After he came back from Spain, he goes to Ephesus and he realizes that the church has gone wild. There's this false teaching that has come. And so he leaves Timothy there. Then he goes to, to Crete. Um, The church also is going through some problems. He drops Titus off. Then he goes back to Macedonia. And while he's in Macedonia, he writes 1 Timothy this letter to say, okay, Timothy, I've been thinking about the problem. I've been thinking about this false teaching, and this is what I want to write to you. And so we want to look at it in light of the passages that come before it and after, realizing that this is a letter that's a little bit different. It's more particular. It's more specific. It's more uh, uh, focused in, narrow, than some of our other letters like Ephesians and Philippians. So if if you still have your Bible open, look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. So at the beginning of Paul's letters, what he's going to do is he is going to uh, give us uh, kind of the purpose, the interpretive interpretive lens, if you will, for what he's going to talk about in the rest of the letters. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 3. Paul says to Timothy, his young Padawan, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge, this is the aim of Paul's letter right here, get it, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away in vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
So Paul gives us the context at the very beginning that there is false teaching. There's specific false teaching right there at Ephesus that's going to look different than our false teaching today. It's surrounded by these genealogies and these myths um, that the church is bringing in. And so Paul is writing and saying, hey, this is what I want you to do is to confront this doctrine, this doctrine that is in the church community, not in the church worship service. So we see that um, Paul is uh, basically, he's kind of like George Strait, he's a fireman, um, putting out these flames. And this is the flame that he's putting out. It's this, this is false teaching that's there at Ephesus that I think is connected to Artemis in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the second thing that we see is that not only is Paul not writing a, a, a broad, systematic theology on uh, what he thinks about women, um, but specifically, these are not just women in general, but uh, these women in Ephesus. But secondly, that we see in this context is that Paul's actually not talking about church office. He's not talking about First Baptist Church Ephesus and what's happening in the worship service. So when he says that uh, a woman should learn in quietness, uh, when he says that a woman should not teach a man, he's not talking about what's happening at the pulpit But we see in chapter 2, verse 1, that he begins by saying, I'm talking, uh, uh, when he talks to the men, I want men everywhere, every place to lift up hands in holiness and unity, not in anger and dissension. And so we're going to see that this is often used as a, a verse to argue against women in a pastoral role or women preaching on Sunday. This is not what this passage is talking about. And so we look at it and we see that um, already the literary context is telling us that this verse may not mean what we think it, think it means. So we look at the historical, we look at the cultural, and we look at the literary context. The last thing that we look at, uh, well, let me say this with that, the literary context. We see that um, with the literary context that he begins talking about modest dressed uh, for women, Again, we kind of see our own reflection in this. Modest dress uh, has nothing to do with uh, uh, sexual uh, desire or attraction. If you look in the context of modest dress, here is uh, especially the rich women of Ephesus uh, walking around showing out how much money they have, showing their clout and their status. And so here, this is not about what happens at 11 o'clock or 9.10 at Grace Point um, on a Sunday morning. This is in general where women are flouting how much money that they have. And so it's not a, a, an issue of modesty, what we think of, as much as uh, this idea of more simplicity um, and not um, uh, materialism. It's an anti-materialism comment, if you will. Um, also, we're going to see that um, this is more of the context of a home uh, rather than in a church setting. And so they didn't have buildings like we have today. And so most of the church settings uh, kind of blurred the lines between the worship service and home. Uh, and then finally, Paul's going to talk about childbearing. This is not something that happened at their main worship service at 11 o'clock at First Baptist Ephesus, if you will. And so these are things that just re- make us realize already that, hey, what we've been talking about and using this verse with may not mean, be the same thing that they were talking about it in Ephesus. The third one that we'll look at is the grammatical. Um, sorry, the, the fourth one that we'll look at is the grammatical issue. So as I mentioned before, the Bible wasn't written in English. Instead, it was written in Greek. And so many of your uh, verses are going to have like a little footnote beside it to say that this verse, this word can also mean this. And so even the word woman is not the general word that Paul uses for woman. Um, it's a word that could also mean wife. And so this may not even be Paul talking about women in general. I don't allow any women, but specifically moving it from the church situation in their culture to the home, gener- to the home situation 
where women should learn at their home under their husband, not because intellect is sexed, because women are, are dumb and can't understand, but because the men had had training. They had had education, and these women had not. And so even in our discussion, is this a discussion about Paul talking about women everywhere, or is it Paul talking about these pesky uh, women who have been led astray by false teaching in Ephesus? And then finally, is Paul even talking about women as a whole, or is he talking about uh, these specific wives, some who are younger than their husbands, who have not had the training? And so already we kind of begin to muddy the water a little bit more. But not only that, but we also come to this phrase, uh, exercise authority. And if you have a study Bible, hopefully it's going to have a little comment that this word is what we call a hopox legamina. It's fun to say, right? Hapax legamina, hapax legamina. Uh, what, it, what it means is that it only occurs here in the Bible. We have nowhere else. Now, the word authority, to exercise authority, is all over the place in the Bible. But Paul doesn't use the word that he uses everywhere else. He doesn't use the word that everyone else uses. But instead, he uses uh, this unusual word where most places outside of the Bible where it does occur, it doesn't mean to exercise authority. It means to domineer. It means to control. It means to browbeat. It means to um, take over and uh, diminish the other person. And so this uh, throwing away their weight and domineering. In fact, the next time we see a Christian saying this, by the way, First Clement, who Paul is going to talk about in First in, in First Timothy, uh, First Clement writes and says that men should not exercise authority over women. Again, the idea is not to dominate, not to control, not to exasperate them in their leadership. And so I think that Paul uses an unusual word because he's dealing with an unusual situation here. And so we have to deal with this word. So what, what does that word mean? Um, is it to exercise authority or is it to domineer and to control? So also with this phrase to teach, and Paul's going to not just say, I don't allow women to have authority, period. I don't allow women to teach, period. But he puts these two together as if we need to understand one in light of the other. So is it that Paul is saying, do not domineer and do not teach anything in general? Do they not want women to teach uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, anyone? Or is this these specific women teaching these false teachings, which they have received from the beginning? Not only that, then we get to the phrase, Women should be, will be saved through childbearing. Now, we know from Paul everywhere else that we are saved by faith through grace. Nothing, 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 nothing else saves us, right? So, sola fide, sola gratia, we are saved by faith. And here, Paul says women should be saved through childbearing. Well, this word saved can, can mean saved in the sense of how we talk about salvation. Um, or it also can mean uh, preserved, kept healthy, kept from dying. Um, and we see that the, the biggest uh, mortality rate among women in the first century was through childbirth. And there were a lot of women that were afraid that once they got pregnant, uh, that they were going to die. And so where do you go if you're, if you're in Ephesus and you want protection, you want to be saved and you don't want to die in childbirth? Artemis. That's what they've grown up. That's what they've taught. And so it may be that some of these young women are going to Artemis and saying, hey, please protect me when I go through child labor. Now, it could be that this does refer to salvation. But one thing that we have that sometimes our English translations don't bring out is that this doesn't say that women will be saved through childbearing. But a better translation is that there's a definite article in front of it. Women will be saved through the childbearing. 
If this is the case, going back to the Old Testament uh, with Eve, uh, Eve, of course, uh, gives birth to this promised seed that's going to bring salvation to the world. And it may be that this is not referring to, to childbearing in general, but specifically to the childbirth, not of Eve, but of the second Eve of Mary, that women are saved through Jesus Christ. He is the Savior, not Artemis. I say all this not to get you to come down on one side or the other, but just to understand that uh, what we're looking at here is far, far away. It's so different than what we're looking at. And so we want to make sure that uh, we look at it in light of its historical culture, that one of these things are not like the other. We want to look at it in light of its literary culture, that Paul is saying that, you know what, the command of I'm writing this, first of all, is about love. Um, It's not about church office. It's not about can a woman be pastor, but it's specifically what's happening with this false teaching by men, by the way. Um, And uh, and some are going to come and say that because Paul uses Genesis uh, 3, uh, that this is meant to be extrapolated to everyone. It's meant to be universal. I don't think that that's the case. I think that what we see with Adam and Eve is because there's this conflation of Artemis with Adam and Eve. I don't think that um, Eve being deceived disqualifies all women of all time from ministry. If that's the case, it seems like Adam disobeying should disqualify men from all time from doing it because Adam was the one who was responsible. And we see other places that Paul says Adam was the reason that death entered into the world. But some are going to say that because this is Genesis 3, that Paul means it universally. Um, And those who um, are on the other side of me, that's going to be their argument. I think that Paul appeals to this because of the specific cultural context and because it's ready. Eve got the information secondhand. She wasn't fully taught like Adam. And many of you by this point are probably familiar with the old proverbial uh, story about how there was a fish um, that was swimming and all of a sudden a man came up and he tapped on the glass and he looked and met the fish's eyes. And the fish looked at him and he looked at, him, at, the, at the fish and all of a sudden there was like this moment where they could understand each other. And the man said to the fish, how's the water? The fish panics, swims away behind the, the blue rocks in the castle. There's another fish that's here and says, hey, did you hear what that man just said to me? The fish said, no. He said, he asked me, how's the water? (laughs) What's water? Leads to the Chinese proverb, if you want to know how the water is, don't ask the fish. And what I want you to see more than anything else um, in this passage is that what they're swim- the water they're swimming in in Ephesus is different water than we're swimming at here. Now, that doesn't mean we can't apply that water. It just that means that we can't quickly go from our fresh water to their salt water or vice versa. Instead, we need to understand that um, they're dealing with some c- cultural aspects. And one thing that we understand is that Paul may not be as far as some of us would like, but he's a lot further than he was in most people in his cultural context. And um, Paul is writing specifically for what's happening there at Ephesus. Another thing that I want you to come away with is that that doesn't mean that we can't apply this passage at all. There are some universal principles in this. And the very first universal principle that we have is that we have to make sure that we protect the vulnerable from bad theology. We have to protect the vulnerable from bad theology. And bad theology comes because we don't have good exegesis. And good exegesis, good interpretation comes from us studying God's word. And I would submit to you today that Men, as well as women, if not more than women, are susceptible to false teaching because we're not students of the Bible anymore. 
Socrates once said that the unexamined life is not worth having. I would say the unexamined, it's not worth living. I would say that the unexamined Bible is not worth having. Many of us have this Bible and we don't actually study it in light of its context. And for many of us, we are deceived because we haven't had the proper training. We're not learning in submission. Even as we're learning, we're seeing our own presuppositions. We're coming to these texts and we're using them in order to oppress or to abuse other people. Instead, we need all, male, female, men, women, child, all of us need to submit and learn and study God's word. Another danger that we see is that this theology that's coming into Ephesus, it's not a foreign theology. It's not something that's totally different, but instead it's taking the cultural aspects of the day and it's blending them. And for many of us, that's our, our, our gospel is not the gospel. It's an American gospel. It's a Western gospel. It's an individual gospel. And as Stanley Hauerwas said, what we have done is that we have uh, inoculated America with the form of the gospel that's not the true gospel so that people are inoculated from the true thing. People are immune to the true thing. And so we have to be careful. We have to examine our own culture. We have to examine our own history. We have to examine our own lives before we come to this text. Before I moved back to the States, I was studying in Germany at a school that Karl Barth uh, was teaching at during World War II. Karl Barth was teaching good theology through Bible interpretation But the Nazis, since he wasn't uh, for the Nazis, uh, one day they knocked on his class as he had much dreaded. They rushed in and they grabbed him, taking him to what he thought was going to be his immediate death. So his last words to his students as he was leaving and being drugged out of the classroom was, students, exegesis, exegesis, exegesis. Those who have been given God's word We need Bible interpretation, Bible interpretation, Bible interpretation. We search the truth because the truth sets us free. There's so much false teaching and bad theology out there that's hurting people. The onus is on us for exegesis, 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 to understand and examine God's word so that we can preach good theology that leads to life. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you right now, and we just thank you for your word, and we pray that it will come with power, great conviction, and the Holy Spirit. God, let us not just be those who read your word. Let us not just be those who put it on a bumper sticker or post it on uh, Facebook or social media. Let us be students of your word to go deeper and greater, God, to uh, come and treat your word like the living, active, double-edged sword that it is. God, that we can preach the truth. God, we can be work people who are not ashamed, who adequately handle your word. And it's in Jesus Christ's name, the word of God, that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Sent.